so excited for you to hear in this episode from Dr. Megan Sweet. She is an author and systems thinker who has been in education for more than 25 years. She's been a teacher, school administrator, and school district leader, and currently serves as an elected member of her local school board. Megan is the founder and CEO of Your Three Eyes, an education consulting firm dedicated to empowering educators with the tools to lead their own school transformations. Megan also has a doctoral degree in educational leadership, and her academic and professional interests rest mainly with how to create effective change in educational contexts. She's also passionate about meditation, mindfulness, and the power of love to heal our world, and is an internationally recognized leader of mindfulness in education. Megan believes that when we approach educating our youth from the inside out by building a supportive and heart-centered connection with ourselves first, we have the confidence and resilience to tackle the important work of transforming our educational settings. Megan shares her unique approach to school change in her book, An Educator's Guide for Using Your Three Eyes. Let's dive into the episode. Hi, I'm Lindsay Lyons, and I love helping school communities envision bold possibilities, take brave action to make those dreams a reality, and sustain an inclusive, anti-racist culture where all students thrive. I'm a former teacher leader turned instructional coach, educational consultant, and leadership scholar. If you're a leader in the education world, whether you're a principal, superintendent, instructional coach, or a classroom teacher excited about school-wide change like I was, you are a leader. And if you enjoy nerding out about the latest educational books and podcasts, if you're committed to a lifelong journey of learning and growth and being the best version of yourself, you're going to love the Time for Teachership podcast. Let's dive in. Dr. Megan Sweet, welcome to the Time for Teachership podcast. I just introduced you formally. Is there anything you would like to add to that professional bio that I read? Well, you know, I'm a single mom. I have a 12-year-old son at home. I'm the mother to two dogs as well. And um, I, yeah, I think that's a big, those, all three of them really shaped my life in a lot of different ways, especially my son. Um, So yeah, uh, we have a lot of fun together. Awesome. Oh, that's so great. As we know in education, we constantly are talking about on the podcast, and I know this is a, is a big piece for you and your work as well. We really want to enact transformative change for the better in education. And so to do that, I often say, you know, we need to think big. And so I'm wondering, I love uh, Dr. Patina Love's idea of, well, she, she borrows it, but she defines freedom dreaming as dreams grounded in the critique of injustice, which I just love as a definition. Mm-hmm. And so as you think about kind of your big dreams for the field of education, maybe in the context of, of that quote, um, you know, what is that transformative change that you want to enact or what is your, your big dream for the field? Uh, so many big dreams for my field and I, I love Dr. Patina Love. So I so appreciate that that's how you're framing it. Um, you know, my big dream is that the field of education um, be really wholly transformed to be one that's more inclusive and empowering for students. I really see education as the gatekeeper to a lot of opportunity in the United States in a place where currently we reinforce a lot of the issues we have in the United States, um, including like systemic racism and institutional, um, you know, implicit bias. Um, not intentionally, but because our education system is replicating what's happening in our larger world. Uh, so my goal would be that we we wholly transform our education system into one where 
educators are treated as the professionals that they are with the knowledge that they have and that they are empowered to create the changes that we need to see in education to truly create um, an equitable learning space for others. The way I see us doing that um, is by learning to tell the stories of what's happening in schools. And it's my kind of my current preoccupation, which is uh, for a long time, and I wrote a book about it, and we may talk about it or not, but uh, this idea of, of knowing ourselves and understanding our own stories, I think is the beginning part. But I also think there's a part of telling the stories of what's actually happening in schools so that folks really understand the challenges that we have um, and our opportunities. Um, and those really have to come from the voices of people that are in those schools. Absolutely. So yeah, you, you kind of started about how talking about how we get to that dream, which I love, and thinking about like all of the you know, breaking away that we need to do from traditional modes of education and, and naming, like you're saying, the stories that aren't often told or like kind of versions of the stories are told, but not the complete picture. And so I'm wondering, I talk a lot about mindset shifts or different ways of thinking and kind of deviating from past ways of thinking whose mindsets need to shift and, and how do you think, like, what's the big, once we get in this frame of mind, now we can move forward and do these things. Um, what's that maybe barrier that's been holding people back that you think if we just kind of switch over that mindset that we can, can make headway on that dream? You know, I think it's a big mindset and I think it's actually appreciating um, how hard it is to be educators and what a high degree of skill and, um, ability it takes to lead our schools. So in the United States, uh, being an educator is not seen as a profession that has a lot of gravitas or um, uh, it's not well respected, right? So that's evident in our pay um, and the way that we treat educators um, and the way that actually when we're even talking about creating change, so rarely do we actually speak to educators who are on the ground doing the work to contemplate what those changes should be. Um, so those are all examples of why we're not treated as the professionals that we are, which is very different in other countries where being a teacher is well-respected, it's highly paid, and it's hard to get into. Um, so I think that's the big shift that we need to make um, in the United States is really understanding just how amazing educators are, what we're doing, and how much we need to be supported and empowered to do that. Um, my hope, and you know, there's a lot of challenges that came out of the pandemic, but my hope is that folks are starting to see just how um, inventive and flexible and dynamic educators can be. Um, no other profession that I know of, um, and I'm biased, but no other profession that I know of changed so completely and overnight to address the needs of the pandemic and not only changed once, but changed multiple times. And if that isn't cause for us to pause and treat folks that are in schools um, with more respect and more reverence and more curiosity. I don't, I don't know what else will. Um, so I think this is our moment. I love that too, because a lot of times people will point to mindset shifts within teachers or within leaders or people who are in the system itself. But I love that yours really calls attention to society as a whole. And so if there are parents or caretakers or you know just anyone who is listening to this and thinking, yeah, how do I support my educators? I think that's a huge piece to just even examine how much you know we're, we're paying. I think that's a wonderful thing you drew attention to, right? When we think about how money is so valued in our society and if we're not distributing that to teachers in accordance with their worth and value to society, um, you know, that's, that's a real problem. So thank you for drawing attention to that. We rarely talk about that, I think, on this podcast. And it's so important. Um, as, as you think about, you know, what we can do if, if a listener is listening from the educational leadership perspective or, or educator perspective, 
you know, how do we kind of bring about that societal shift or bring about that like inclusion that you were talking about in the freedom dream at the top of the episode? Um, I know you've written, like you mentioned a whole book about, about kind of educational change and transformation. And I'm curious to know, like, you know, what are those key ideas that you talk about maybe in, in the book? Yeah, that's great. So I think if we're thinking about change from like an individual person or school level, um, then I think the change has to happen like both inside of ourselves as well as outside in the larger system. So I'll start with with inside first. So I I firmly believe that the, the best way for us to create change in our education settings is by learning to take care of ourselves better. Um, and by learning to work with ourselves or work on ourselves, which can sound critical or suggesting that educators need to change themselves. But here's what I mean. Um, As educators, we're in front of other human beings all day long. It's one of the most interactive um, fields that there are. And we are interacting with children who are highly impressionable. So it's really important that we become aware of ourselves, our biases, our beliefs about ourselves, our cultural influences, Um, so that we can be the most inclusive and empowering to our students. Um, That's number one. Number two, and the reason why self-care is important is that there's a lot of growing research, and I've been in the mindfulness world um, for quite a while as well. Um, There's a lot of research that shows that when, um, well, as humans, we have these things called mirror neurons, which basically means that um, we pick up uh, the signals, the unspoken signals of the people around us, and we're always monitoring for safety. And um, I'm oversimplifying it, but let's just say that's what's true. So if we're in a classroom or in a school and we're an educator that's dysregulated, we're upset, we're frustrated, we're angry, our kids actually subconsciously pick that up and um, it sends them into fight, flight, or freeze mode. This also actually happens when we don't respect or include um, a student's cultural identity or norms within a classroom. Same thing happens as fight, flight, freeze mode happens. When that happens, our kids' bodies and minds ready themselves for survival, which means that actually their learning brains shut down and their survival instincts and, and you know, capacities um, amp up. Uh, so when we don't create safe learning environments for our kids, sorry, my dogs are deciding to enjoy uh, join in the conversation today. Um, when we don't create safe learning environments for our kids, um, we actually inhibit our own ability to teach them effectively. So that's what happens with our kids. But we as adults also deserve to feel good and feel supported and grounded. And so when we focus on uh, taking care of ourselves and learning more about ourselves, we become more self-aware, we become more grounded, we feel better. Um, and we're actually more effective at our job. So for me, it begins with this self-work side of, of things. Um, so we learn about ourselves and we can create changes in our own lives, not affecting, not making anyone else do anything, just within our own lives. It changes how we interact with others, both our students and our, and our peers. When we can do that, <laughs> then we can work together to take on the, the hairier issues of, of, of school change or classroom change that are going to be more dynamic. They're going to bring more emotions into the play, into the into play, um, and they can be more involved because we're able to meet with each other in a different place. So to me, it all begins with a self care. Um, if we're talking about the like the person first, and that's what my book a lot is about is about how you do work with yourself and then use that to work within your context. I love that approach too because I think there's. There's so much that we could do internally to, like you started saying at the very beginning, I think, you know, we don't want to say educators, you need to do so much more. And we want to acknowledge that they're, that they're doing so much great work already, but also that learning and growing. I love that you framed it this way makes their job easier, right? Makes educators jobs easier. 
because there is that interaction with students that there is that, you know, um, scanning for safety that's happening and we're allowing students to kind of develop that relation and that even beyond one-on-one, right? The class culture even um, Mm -hmm. that creates the space for students to engage more. And I love that you framed it in that way because I think it's, it's one of care. It's one of excitement to be able to do my job better, have more joy in my life at work, you know? Um, And I think that's a really important framing for such an important like journey that the educator is going to go down for this kind of self-development. And I'm curious, right. is there, if there's a teacher listening, who's like, Ooh, okay. I am now on board with this idea. And maybe I was a little resistant because it just felt like an additional to do. Um, right. Is there something that you would suggest as an approach for them to start this work? Um, the simplest thing is to do more things that you enjoy on a daily basis. So that I would say that's the simple thing, right? So that could literally be, cause I think we as humans and maybe we as educators, we do, we like overcomplicate this to this point where it like suddenly becomes unattainable and not possible, not in any way possible to do, but it literally could be five minutes a day doing something that you enjoy more. Do you like walking? walk for five minutes a day. If you like sitting in the garden, sit in the garden for five minutes a day. When we when we choose to start doing things that bring us joy and that make us happy, it helps us to be more present and it helps, you know, joy is a, is a great thing in a lot of other places. I would say a mindfulness tech practice is another good thing. Again, you don't even, five minutes is enough <laughs> um, to start to feel a lot better. Um, and there's a lot of free resources for that that are out there. Um, I often teach how to do like a three breath micro practice, like three breaths in the middle of a chaotic classroom will do wonders for how um, things start to feel in that class um, right away. So there's some really simple things that we can do. Um, I do say it, it does mean like committing though to self-care, which means I know we in this field and I've been guilty of it for most of my career, including this last year, we have this unspoken like um, badge of honor. If we work the hardest, we stay the longest, we sacrifice the most. And that as a community, we need to change. So we need to actually um, be unapologetic about leaving work at work. There's always gonna be work to do. It never stops. So um, learning to step away at the end of the day, learning to unplug, disconnect, have our own lives um, as well as the lives we have for our students in schools, because when we don't, we burn out. So if we really want to stay in the profession, we really want to support our students and taking care of ourselves, it's fundamental. So I'd say those are some of the things that I would recommend as a starting point. Those are great starting points. And I love the phrase you use, be unapologetic about leaving work at work. That is so necessary for people to hear. So I just wanted to repeat that again, because (laughs) you're right about that badge of honor. Like I've heard it called a martyrdom mindset and different things Mm -hmm. like that. It's just staying late. It should not be, you know, a badge of honor that we wear, right? We should be able to find these ways to effectively and efficiently get our work done and still take care of ourselves and be full people so that our students are like, oh yes, they do go home. They don't live at the school. This is normal. (laughs) Yeah. And I'll, I'll share a little brief anecdote, which is, it's still chilling for me. (laughs) Um, and I, and I, cause I also want to name that it's hard for, for teachers to feel like they can do that. Cause I, I do think that education leaders who, who I tend to spend most of my time with are the ones that really need to set the stage for this. So my brief anecdote is that a few years back, a school district that I used to support, was having their beginning of school, you know, welcome event. And they had two principals share what their strategies were for creating um, highly effective school teams. And one of the principals said, 
Well, when I interview for teachers, the ones that say that they have boundaries and it's something, it wasn't quite boundaries, but something like that. And that they, um, that they take care of themselves and, and that they do, you know, prioritize taking care of their own well-being. Um, when those people say that in the interview, I immediately uh, eliminate them from my pool of people I'm willing to consider. And the room broke out into this big, huge round of applause, all other school leaders chilling, right? Because um, that's the problem, right? So it has to be at every single level of our organ of our profession, because um, principals, you know, tend to be those teachers that stayed late and that worked too hard and that over pushed themselves. Those are the ones that we consider successful that then get the nod to become the school leaders. And then the, the school leaders that work incredibly hard get the nod to become the central office leaders. Um, and that happens all across our system. So we have to at every level of our system, commit to living work at work. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that's one of the, the biggest struggles that I have when I work with educators is, but if my admin doesn't understand this, then how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to get approval to take something off of my plate? If, if we both know it needs to go as the coach and the educator, but the admin or the person who is, you know, describing the duties of the teacher doesn't allow it to come off the plate, then it's, you know, we're kind of stuck. And so I appreciate that you named that, um, that I can think can be a huge barrier, even for a teacher who is committed to self-care and who, like you said, says in the interview, this is who I am and this is what I believe and how I'm going to operate as an educator. And so I'm wondering, what advice you have for the educational leaders to create that space? Are there certain things that they can do or conversations they can have um, that allow teachers to really focus on their own selves? Yeah, I mean, I think first it's modeling, right? So um, we can say, take care of yourself, I believe in you. And I think a lot of school leaders start to say that, right? Like we believe in you, we want you to take care of yourselves, but then they're the ones that are staying at school till eight o'clock at night. And it creates this unspoken expectation or pressure on the other folks in the school to stay that late as well. So they also need to model taking care of themselves. Uh, what I do to often convince educators <laughs> that this is important is I share some of the research and I'm forgetting the name right now. I wanna say it's Richard Murnane, but I could be wrong. Um, uh, but a researcher in Canada found that when, when leaders invested in their teachers in their professional development and actually invested in the teacher's professional development in whatever it is that they wanted to do, whether it was related to instruction or not, so maybe, I mean, this is an extreme example and not in the research, but I'll just say it. Maybe the teacher wanted to be a really great tap dancer. It doesn't really matter. If the teacher was encouraged to pursue their passions, it made them a better teacher in the classroom, instructionally in other places. So that investment matters. And I need to find this research article because I've been, I'll find it and I'll share it with you because uh, I've been talking about it a lot lately and maybe I'm totally messing it up. But the idea is important. Uh, as well as again, mindfulness. So when we support people to take care of themselves and their own well-being, uh, if a teacher practices mindfulness, even just a little bit during the day, separate from the kids, it makes them more effective teachers. It makes them um, better with discipline, better with instructional strategies, more open and aware. They create safer and better in classroom environments and the kids pick up on that. So um, it is the cheapest and easiest thing we can do. And it's actually legally what we're supposed to do. So why not just go for that? Um, it's not something that's something extra. It's actually something less um, that I know feels counterintuitive to us because we've been, we've been all believing for a long time that we need to overwork to be effective. And that's just not, if that was, if that was true, then we wouldn't be having as many problems as we have in education right now. So that's clearly not true. Um, but we have to we have to stop. We have to start questioning that that belief that we all have. Absolutely. And I, I, I was reminded of a story as you were sharing the modeling piece 
um, not really a story, just more of my transition from working from different to different principals in different schools. And so the first two schools that I ever worked at as the teacher, the modeling was you, you stay, you stay until 8 PM at night, you know, you're, you're present, you're there. And so no matter how many PDs or staff meetings we had, where it was, we care about you and we, we want the best for you, that modeling wasn't present. And as a result, I see, I saw exactly what you were talking about, right? You see mm-hmm. other people staying, you see other people coming in, getting no sleep, being exhausted exhausted. It totally manifests in the classes. The kids are not receiving the instruction in in the way that, you know, would be possible in a class where a teacher is coming in joyful and well-rested and like ready to get to know their students and and co-create the learning. And so that's a really, really important shift for me from those first two schools that I worked into the third, where the principal literally would yell down the hall 10 minutes after the kids went home to be like, who's still here? Go home, go home. I don't want to, you know, I don't want you staying here. Even 30 minutes passed uh, when the students are, are here and also really modeling with email. I think too, I I think a lot of teachers are stressed about email boundaries. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't send an email past working hours. And so Mm -hmm. she wouldn't expect one back either. And I think things like that are really powerful. The culture was everyone goes home at the time that the kids are going home for the most part. And everyone took their sick days. Like everyone took all 10 sick days that were allocated to them for the entire year. I had never been in a school like that. In fact, the first school I was in, I got reprimanded for taking four sick days when I was really Mm -hmm. sick. And Mm -hmm. that was, there was a a chart on the wall that she pointed to ordering the amount of teachers (laughs) and the number of sick days they took. It was mind blowing. And so that just really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right. It's it's, it's counterintuitive, but it, I, I had the same, I had a boss like that where I would, he worked all night and would get up at like three in the morning. So I would work really hard to a single mom. I had like a two and a half year old at the time and we were doing all this intensive work and he would give me these like, so I would work through to get my email clean by the time I went to bed. Cause I, I just needed to feel like I had completed stuff, which I shouldn't have, but that's what I did. And then I'd wake up at six in the morning and there would be 15 new emails from him just outlining all this work that I need to do. And it was so defeating. Um, So there's a couple things, leaders. Number one, like if if you're thinking during that time, that's cool. You can time when those emails get sent to someone. So if you still have a lot of work to do, just don't send the email until work hours. You can just literally code it in your email. You can hit send and it will send at the appropriate time. So that's really helpful. But also, again, we need to model ourselves because with that boss, there was no way I couldn't work that much. Otherwise, I knew that I would be in trouble. In fact, when I started setting boundaries on that team, I did start to feel the blowback from that. Um, But it was just unsustainable. Um, And I was, you know, I had to leave. And if we really want to transform our education system and create um, the best for our kids, which I think we all do, that means we have to stay. Because when the people with the expertise leave the classroom or leave education because they're burned out and overwhelmed, then our kids don't benefit from that knowledge. And, you know, any other profession, well, let's say I was, as you were talking, I was thinking about like the Olympic trials are happening, right? So I was thinking about prime athletes. They take their well-being, their well-being very seriously. That's their job. They sleep the right amount of time. They eat the right amount of time. They work really hard, but then they make sure that they rest because they know that that's what's going to make sure that they're going to be able to be at their peak. Why would that not be true for educators or anyone else? I just, it's, of course it is. Um, We're not different humans. We're not built differently. So we need to do the same. 
I love that comparison. That makes so much sense. And I, I too, I don't know that there's a really a question in here, but I was just thinking as, as you were mentioning that, and just thinking about the whole, like, you know, work-life balance concept, there's a push in the business realm to do like four day work weeks. And I think that's really interesting. I mean, we could look at different educational models in different countries, you know, doing less time in the physical school building as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that's really the mindset shift required to transition from a five-day work week to a four-day work week requires us to get really clear, I think, on what is it that I really need to be doing? What are the activities that I'm doing as an educator or as a leader that are actually facilitating learning and growth and joy in my school? And I'm just, yeah, I was just thinking like, maybe that's a helpful framing to just say, like, if you didn't come to school Friday, which I don't think we can institute doing that, but if you didn't, hypothetically, you just took your, your planning time off or whatever, you know, what would you absolutely do if you had less time to do it in? And then we build in kind of that flex time maybe or something. I think it's super interesting to think about. Well, I think we're in this great moment, which is um, what, I mean, I was, I, I love educators. They're my favorite people. And I've been re-inspired this year just by um, just the prima- profound amount of adaptability and brilliance that came out of um, every sector of, of education from custodians to school principals, to teachers, to everybody who works in a school, how hard everybody worked and how much we met this moment. But we have a moment here where actually we've seen that we can teach effectively remotely, um, not all the time, but that we could actually build that in. So what would it look like to build in a day where kids are learning remotely and they're getting instruction four days a week. And I, I know that that childcare is important. It's one of, the, you know, one of the other things that I think has come up is how many different services schools provide beyond instruction. So, but we could be flexible now. We've learned that we can be flexible and we don't have to be locked into a school and into the old system to be able to teach effectively for kids. Not ideal to be remote all the time, but like we can teach kids remotely and, and infuse that in. I think the other thing that we've seen this year and I'm excited about, but I'm also afraid because I feel like it's a short-term response is actually how important self-care and wellness is. So across the country, I live in California where um, there's a there's some federal money for addressing wellness and this re-entry into school, just recognizing that students and staff need some additional support. Um, and in California, we have even more funding directly related to that. So for me, as somebody who's been pushing wellness for a long time, um, it's the first time that I've seen some opening and some like interest and willingness to actually invest in wellness programming. Um, and my hope is that we will do more of that. So all this self-care and everything else that we've been talking about, this is the moment to institute it, <laughs> not just for this first year back, but moving forward. Um, and this is the moment to try that out. Absolutely. And actually, I think that goes with the next question. So we've talked about so many different things that different people can do and, and different shifts that society in general can make. So if a person is listening to this and kind of either taking notes or feeling like, oh, there's so many different things I could do. What is one thing that you think is a good starting point for someone who's just, you know, putting down the ear pods and, and saying, okay, like I'm going to do one thing now to create a more sustainable work life for myself, um, to live in alignment with, you know, justice, justice and inclusion and equity and all the things that you started saying, you know, at the top of the episode, um, what's, what's that one thing? It is just committing to self-care in some way. Um, and it, or it could be self-compassion. So I think it's committing to that. And again, this doesn't mean you suddenly go to your boss and say, I'm, I'm not working past five minutes after school and any of that. I mean, you have to know your own context. But I think often we think that the only way to create change is by impacting others. 
So I did this thing called Being in Believing Eyes, which isn't from me. It's actually from a spiritual teacher by a woman named Sonia Choquette. But this is my example. Because I started seeing this need for wellness and self-care. And I worked in central office and I often closed schools. So I was in very intense environments a lot of the time. Um, and I wanted to change the way we all interacted with one another in the central office because you think schools are rough. <laughs> central office meetings with like district leaders is like, it's a rough space to live in. And so I had this original idea of like, well, I want us all to change the way we interact with one another. And I realized that that wasn't really possible. So I was like, well, what can I do for myself? So I played with this game called being the believing eyes. And when you're the believing eyes, what you do basically is be the biggest cheerleader you can for all the people around you. So there's a lot of competition in education and a lot of like kind of trying to one up one another. And it certainly happens in central offices a lot. And so I decided to just pull myself out of that whole game and just cheer everyone on. So I asked people questions. I got really curious about their lives and when they accomplished things and everybody's accomplishing amazing things all the time. I just acknowledged it. I was like, you know, I really love what you said in the meeting right here. Or I noticed that this thing, this program that you're doing uh, was successful at this one school. And I just want to tell you, I really appreciate what you're doing. So just little things of just choosing to focus on the greatness of the people around me. So it's called being the believing eyes. And it profoundly changed the way my interactions were with other people. And folks started spontaneously doing it back to me. So, you know, when things got dicey, in, which as they do, you know, I think we were having funding issues or whatever, people started spontaneously coming up to me and telling me they appreciated what they appreciated about the work that I did. Um, so I got to feel a little bit better, but it changed the way we interacted with one another. So I think self-care is important, but also just knowing that it is enough and it is enough of a starting point to work with yourself. And it always feels like we want to do bigger than that but just committing to feeling better yourself, you will change the way your interactions are with other people. And that will change the way things feel. So just start with yourself. That is a wonderful suggestion. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the closing questions I always ask is, you know, everyone that is on the podcast is really a self-described learner or lifelong learner. And so we're constantly learning and growing as educators and educational leaders. And I know you have a podcast, so this could be in relation to your podcast or not, but I imagine you're constantly learning just in your conversations with guests and other folks on the podcast as well. You're also a scholar. And so I'm sure you're learning so much in that, in that capacity. Um, What's something that you've been learning about lately that you might want to share with folks? Oh, that's a great question. So we, I, I do do a podcast called The Awakening Educator, and um, recently we had um, uh, the founders of a nonprofit called A Long Talk uh, on our podcast, and A Long Talk is focused on addressing uh, systemic um, racism and the inequities that exist in our society, um, but it starts with a simple uh, choice of us choosing to be anti-racist, and He said something in the podcast that I'll I'll paraphrase, which is basically like, choose your front line and start doing something about it. And and I think that that was such a powerful framework, definitely powerful and important around the systemic inequities that we have in our society. So I'd say for sure, pick your figure, figure out what your place of, and what he meant by front line was basically what's your area of influence. So choose your area of influence and do something about it. Um, I think is, is what I've been really playing with a lot. Cause I just, it just, I could breathe better. I was like, okay. Cause when I think about how big the challenges are in the United States, it gets really overwhelming. But if I focus on like, what can I change? So I'm a school board member. I can change things in the school district. So I actually have a relatively large amount of influence. <laughs> I can change things in my school district. Um, I can change my interactions with folks. Um, I can continue to work on my own self-awareness around implicit bias and how it influences me. And that 
shrunk the change in a way that felt really um, doable for me. Um, so that's something that I've been really focusing on a lot. Um, the other one um, that I've been focusing on a lot in terms of what I could share with others is this notion of servant leadership. Um, and servant leadership is really about how to be in service of the students that you're teaching, or if you're an administrator, the staff and the families that you're supporting, um, and how that can really shift the way that it feels in a classroom or a school. Um, and I actually have a free workshop on that. If folks go to my website, you can access it. Um, so for me, again, I'm try I've been thinking a lot about how to reopen school in the fall. And um, so pick your front line and do something. And, um, and try and be in service as much as possible when we come back, um, including to yourself. So self-care is a big part of servant leadership. I like that. I've, heard, I've never heard someone say that in that way about servant leadership. So I've studied servant leadership and leadership studies and everything. But yeah, that self-care is a huge part of that, right? Because otherwise we Absolutely. burn out and we can't serve. So nope. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, so where can people, I'm sure people are going to want to either read your book, listen to your podcast, where can right. people connect with you online or find you in those spaces? Great. Yeah. The best places to go to my website where the link to the website and to the podcast is there as well. Um, and the website is Dr. Dr. Uh, Megan Sweet, M-E-G-A-N-S-W-E-E-T.com. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Sweet, for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you too. And thanks for all the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening, amazing educators. If you loved this episode, you can share it on social media and tag me at Lindsay Beth Lyons or leave a review of the show so leaders like you will be more likely to find it. Until next time, leaders, continue to think big, act brave, and be your best self. Thank you.